are your eyes only. It's Roger Moore as Ian Fleming's James Bond 007. spy ship sunk in the Ionian Sea. She was equipped with ATAC. Have we begun a salvage operation? We asked Sir Timothy Havelock to secretly locate the wreck. He and his wife were killed by Hector Gonzalez. Police were able to identify Gonzalez by Melina, Sir Havelock's daughter. Explosive. Exclusive. Well, I trust you, Alcant. For your amazement, this bond is for you. On the special episode of Movie Geeks United, we welcome back returning guest Ray Morton to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the 12th in the James Bond film series for your eyes only, released on June 26, 1981 in these great United States of ours and 24th of June in the UK. The film was a reset of sorts for the series, and uh, Ray's going to tell us all about why it was a reset of sorts and why they needed to do a reset of sorts. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, before we get into all that, we'll mention Ray's books because he's written some terrific books. I always like to talk about your, your great mm. books that you've written. Uh, of course, the obvious one, King Kong, The History of a Movie Icon, which I think is out of print at this point, but I'm seeing some, you know, there's some pretty... It's going for some pretty high prices on Amazon. At least they're asking for some high prices. Oh yeah, yeah. I wish I, I wish I had a cut of any of those. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, a, it's, doing, it's doing okay in the secondary market, I guess. <laughs> yes, it's but it's out there. You can, if you shop around, uh, still pick it up uh, for a reasonable price if you do a little uh, judicious. Um, Pricing, I guess you would say. But anyway, it is a terrific book on all of the King Kong films up to two, the 2005 Peter Jackson reimagining. Uh, it, it covers yeah. them all, and it's uh, very, very in-depth, and there's a lot, a lot of great stories and info. And that's why he was asked to uh, contribute the audio commentary to the recent Scream slash Shout Factory Blu-ray edition of King Kong, which is fantastic. Uh, that This came out this past May. It sold out, and they had to do a reprinting on it. There was such a demand. I never thought I would live long enough to see the theatrical and the TV cut of King Kong being domestically released on Blu-ray in, the, in North America, but yet it happened. <laughs> yeah, that, I tell you, that was such a thrill, like the TV version especially, because I, I never thought we'd see that again. I didn't either, especially in its proper aspect ratio of 2.35 to 1. Amazing stuff. And, uh, yeah, I, I had to pinch myself multiple times to make sure I wasn't dreaming. But, you know, it really <laughs> happened. And uh, uh, So, anyway, and we'll move on to some of his other books, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Making of Steven Spielberg's Classic Film, and another great uh, book about the creation of another classic film. Uh, and the Musgon film series, he's contributed two volumes to that, the Amadeus book and the Hard Day's Night book for the Music on Film series. And there's a couple of great books he's written on uh, the secrets of screenwriting as well. So you can find all those and Amazon and all those great places where you shop for books. So I would highly recommend any or all, if you don't have them, to pick them up. So <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, of course. Uh, without further ado, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of... Uh, for your eyes only. And I guess the best way to start this is to go back to 1979, the summer of 79. Uh, yeah. It was uh, the marked the release of Moonraker, which was obviously something of an attempt to grab the Star Wars audience. Uh, that was, there was a sizable portion of the movie going public who was uh, obviously enchanted by Star Wars. And so, Eon Productions attempted to grab some of that audience with an outer space James Bond, and uh -huh. uh, it, it met with a lot of <laughs> negative reactions from the critical community. Uh, there were charges of uh, it being just way too excessive, and I don't know, uh, you can probably explain it better than I can uh, about the uh, negative reaction to it, but anyway, two years later they decided to do a pretty much a virtual reset of the series and get to it. So anyway, we'll, we'll start with the Moonraker uh, kerfuffle, I guess you would say, and then what, what led to the decision for your eyes only, and it's also interesting to mention that 
uh, sp- uh, at the end of The Spy Who Loved Me, it says, coming next. Yes. <laughs> for Your <laughs> yeah, Eyes Only, but that, that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, for Your Eyes Only starts with Spy Who Loved Me more than anything else. Uh, right, but yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah, well, that was originally the idea was, and, and by that point, the, the thing about The Spy Who Loved Me was that it really only used the title of the novel because Ian Fleming had said um, he did not want that particular novel even even remotely adapted. So the idea, they were kind of reaching the point where the, the movies were having less and less to do with the books that they were based on. So The Spy Who Loved Me was, was a total uh, invention in terms of the screen story. They really only used the title. And when they put up For Your Eyes Only at the end of Spy Who Loved Me, um, that's the title of a short story, one of Ian Fleming's short stories. And I think I don't think they had an idea of what that film was going to be. They just knew they were going to use that title. And I don't think there was a concept for For Your Eyes Only at that point. Um, but very quickly, like uh, uh, Spy Who Loved Me came out in the summer of 77. And obviously that was the same year that Star Wars came out. So by the time they were getting ready to think about the next film, you know, the space was on everybody's mind. And so Covey Broccoli, who at that point was producing the series by himself and United Artists, decided to go in the direction of some kind of outer space adventure. So they picked the title more appropriate. They picked Moonraker, which was another one of Fleming's novels. And again, came up with a completely invented story. It had nothing to do with the novel other than the title and the name of the villain, uh, Hugo Drax. But otherwise, it was a completely new uh, new story, more modern, and obviously sent Bond into space. And and it's interesting because you said it met with negative critical reaction. The interesting thing is it didn't really at that time. I actually remember that the New York Times gave it a really great review. And part of the reason for that is The Spy Who Loved Me really reactivated the James Bond series. It had kind of been going into the doldrums a little bit in the early 70s. Uh, the, The previous film to Spy was The Man with the Golden Gun. And that was the lowest grossing in the entire series. So there was kind of this idea that the series might be on its way out at that point. And they came back with Spy, which they increased the budget and they sort of pulled out all the stops. And it's a really super entertaining film, you know, in my opinion, one of the best in the series. And it really got people excited about James Bond all over again in a way they hadn't been since the height of Bond mania in in the 60s. So when Moonraker came out, it really was kind of a continuation of Spy, and it was gigantic, a big production, very tongue-in-cheek, you know, in a lot of ways, very much the height of where Roger Moore was, you know, where he was with his characterization of Bond. And actually, audiences really liked it at the time, um, and a lot of critics liked it, too, who didn't like it were the sort of the Bond purists, because obviously it's an outrageous uh, fantasy film and a lot of comedy and it really doesn't have much to do with the literary bond or even the early serious bond. Um, but, but, um, and, and I think its reputation has suffered in the year since because there's, as anyone who's seen it knows, there's a lot of silliness in it. So I don't think it's as well thought of now as it was then, but it actually, it, it was, a, it was the biggest grossing film in the series up till that point. And it got a fairly positive um, critical response then. I don't think you'll see that now. Um, but then two factors happened that, that kind of led them to reset. The first is that Moonraker cost $30 million to make, which now doesn't sound like anything. You can't make a, a you know a two-hander anymore for that. <laughs> but in those days, that it was one of the most expensive films ever made. Um, you know, the, the, the budget had started to kind of climb up a lot in the post Star Wars era because of, you know, the, the cost of special effects and, and, every, and Moonraker's a, a huge production. And the, and the, and so they couldn't really keep going in that direction because the budgets would have just gotten, um, you know, unwieldy, uh, impossible to do, especially because, um, United Artists was also in a lot of trouble at that point because Heaven's Gate had come out and Heaven's Gate had um, bombed spectacularly. So the company actually wasn't doing all that well financially. 
Plus, um, the late 70s and early 80s was a time of recession and, uh, you know, uh, the economy wasn't doing well. And basically, United Artists went to Cubby Broccoli and they said, you know, we'll do the next James Bond film, but it cannot cost what Moonraker cost. And we really have to be really careful about the budget. And if it does go to those lanes, we're, we're basically not going to proceed because you reach a point where it wasn't going to be profitable. So, so that was one factor in wanting to do a picture with um, a little more down to earth and a little less scope and scale. The other thing was the Bond purists really didn't like the film and Michael Wilson and Cubby Broccoli, Michael Wilson was the executive producer and he's the current producer of the Bond series. They kind of knew that Moonraker had gone probably way too far. Um, the, the Bond folks were really good about paying attention to audience reaction and they knew audiences loved it. But as Michael Wilson has been quoted as saying, he goes, we couldn't go past that because it would just, it would become science fiction and it would become a comedy and they didn't want that to happen. So with United Artists telling them that they wanted to lower the budget and, and their feeling that maybe they didn't want to continue in the fantasy vein that Moonraker was, uh, those all led them to think about doing a more traditional spy picture, um, and a little more in line with the earlier Bonds. The, the one they always mentioned was um, From Russia With Love. And and so they, they came up with the idea that we're going to make a smaller scale picture, more focused on espionage, spying, and, and uh, you know, action sequences and things, and not so much fantasy, not so much comedy. And that's what led them to the creative decisions to to make you three yards only the way that they did. Oh, okay. See, I uh, I don't know why I had this uh, mm. um, this image in my or, or rather I, I had this feeling mm. that there was all this negative criticism when it came out. And I guess I'm thinking of it yeah. in hindsight. And so I'm glad you cleared that up because that's something that I. I know that Leonard Malton in his uh, TV movies book, of yeah. course, he always was pretty brutal yeah. uh, with it. Right. And, uh, and I guess I was thinking from a, uh, you know, I, I just assumed that that was general, and I should have, uh, you know, been more diligent in my research on the reviews at the time. Uh, but I, like myself, uh, like yourself rather, I felt like it was a little, um, you know, that the that it has a lot going for it, so to speak. Uh, yes, it does get a little. Yeah ridiculous uh, towards the the final stretch but <laughs> when yeah. they i think they made a major uh, faux pas by turning um, uh, mr jaws into a hero yeah that was that was a, a, the wrong way to go with that but you know uh, aside from that there are some spectacular set pieces but yes uh to to what you were saying about michael g wilson the co-writer pointing out yeah there there was not much if they had gone past that it would uh probably would not have been a good thing. So, yes, I can understand right, why they right. needed to get back to the basics. Right. And and so what they did, and I thought this was really kind of clever, they started, uh, they brought, um, the, the guy who wrote the most uh, screenplays for the Bond series was a writer called Richard Maybaum. Mm -hmm. And he had, he had sort of not been participating in some of the films in the later half of the 70s. He had nothing to do with Moonraker. And he had written a first draft of The Spy Who Loved Me, but it was it was pretty radically altered by the time they got to the screen. And he had, you know, um, so he hadn't been involved so much uh, for for a number of years. So they brought him back and he had done most of the heavy lifting on uh, From Russia With Love. So they, they thought, let's let's get the guy responsible for the film we kind of want to get close to. Um, so they brought back Richard Maybaum, and he started working. And at that time, Michael G. Wilson was um, working as the series executive producer. He was in charge of sort of the, the business aspects and a lot of all that aspect of production. But he also had worked. He was heavily involved in the, in the screenplay development of The Spy Who Loved Me. So he started working with Maybaum on ideas. And what they decided to do was actually go back and adapt more Fleming material than had actually been used in almost any of the movies since on a Majesty's Secret Service. So they, instead of having a novel, they didn't really have a novel they could adapt, but they picked two short stories. Uh, the first one being the title story for your eyes only. 
And then the second one uh, being a, uh, a story called uh, Risico. And Risico was about two um, two smugglers who are like in rivalry, rivalry with each other. Sorry about that. Um, and that Bond gets involved in. And For Your Eyes Only was about a young woman seeking vengeance for the murder of her parents. So they took those two elements, put them together, tied them together with a subplot, an invented subplot about the search for uh, what what was called in the film the ATAC machine, which was a programming de- um, device for nuclear missiles. Um, so they tied the two stories together around that plot device. They also brought in a piece from the novel Live and Let Die, which had not been used in the film version or in any of the films, a, a keel-hauling sequence where Bond and the girl are dragged behind a boat by the by the villain. That was originally in the novel Live and Let Die. It didn't appear in the film, and they had wanted to do it for a long time. So they took those three elements from Fleming, tied it together with the ATAC subplot, and as they were working on the treatment, um, Richard Maybon started to ask Michael G. Wilson to become more and more involved in the writing. And at a certain point, they decided to become collaborators. And why that's important is they not only worked on that script, but the team of Richard Maybaum and Michael G. Wilson then went on to write all of the Bond films of the 80s. Um, so that was the beginning of that partnership. Yeah, what a great job they did, because most of those films, yeah. maybe with the exception of View to a Kill, that's a little yeah. <laughs> on the weaker <laughs> side. Uh, right, but right. other than that, uh, that's that's a pretty good group of films, I would say. And yeah. um and it's a very good screenplay. Like they, they, the scenes don't show between the different stories. Mm-hmm. And it's inter- it's interesting because it, it kind of shifts perspective. Bond is through the whole film, but in some places, the characters played by Julian Glover and T'Pol are really the main characters sometimes. And sometimes the main character is Melina, played by Carol Bouquet. Um, and then Bond ties it all together. So it's an interesting story construction, but it works very, very well. Um, and they also came up with what I think is just a terrifically witty and and very wry ending to the story, because after all of the chasing through the entire movie for this device, in the end, Roger Moore has it in his hands, and, and it's all, all these people have died because the Russians have been trying to get it, and the bad guys are working for the Russians to get it, and then when they finally um, come face to face with the Russian officer in the end to turn it over, Moore just throws it off a cliff and destroys it. And he has a great line. He says, that's Dayton. He goes, you don't have it and we don't have it. And I thought that was just the best way to end a Cold War thriller <laughs> at that oh, time. Oh, yeah. Period, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's, that's a terrific yeah. way to, to wrap and, it up. And the, yeah. The, yeah, the thing they did in, that's important also is – the Bond films had pretty much stayed above real-world politics. They really didn't want to involve it. The, the 80s films, beginning with For Your Eyes Only, they really directly addressed the Cold War head-on. And, and the, the, the actual espionage part of Bond's life is much more important in the 80s movies than in any of the other films. And sorry, I cut you off. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, yeah. I, I was pretty much f- finished with what I was saying, and, that, and that's an excellent point. Because, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a sign of the times, so to speak, and uh, keeping yes. things with the, the current mood of the world at that time. I think that was, um, yeah, that, that was probably a wise decision. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, now, I think it's interesting. One thing that I always found interesting is, is, is the opening sequence, the pre-title sequence for this film, is quite different from uh, most of what's come before and after. Um because it's one of the few that actually ties back to previous entries. You don't get a lot of that. Uh, it's happened a couple of times, but it doesn't happen a whole lot. And I don't recall it happening in any of the other Roger Moore films. And there's a reason for that. I was going to get you to tell us about that. Because I think there was a contract uh, renegotiation with Roger Moore. And, they, and so they wanted to link this to... Um, uh, if there was a new actor, they wanted to make sure it was linked to other films. So if you could tell us a little bit about that, I thought that was an interesting story. Right, right, yeah. Well, it's funny. Um, the key film there is Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which is the film in which Bond gets married 
and then his wife is killed at the end. And that tragedy colors the character, especially in the books. And the interesting part is they do refer to them in the, in the Roger Moore films. That, that was the film with George Lazenby. Then they brought, um, they brought it in a little bit in Diamonds Are Forever because right. uh, he, uh, the wife is killed by Blofeld and, and Sean Connery returns as Bond trying to get vengeance on Blofeld. There's a wonderful scene in The Spy Who Loved Me, and I think it's actually one of Roger's best scenes, where he's interacting with the Russian spy uh, Barbara, played by Barbara Bach, and she brings up his wife. She says something like she's doing a dossier on him. She says, you know, he, he did this and he was recruited from the Navy. He has many, many lady friends, but he was married only once. And then she says the wife was killed and Roger Moore has this reaction. And he basically um, basically tells her to, to knock it off. And use, it's one of Roger's best scenes. So they did refer to the late wife in The Spy Who Loved Me. But yes, what had happened was um, Roger had uh, signed a three-film contract when he began, and that was Live and Let Die, The Man with the Golden Gun, and Spy Who Loved Me. So he negotiated a new contract for Moonraker, and uh, and he was only going to negotiate single contracts from then on, no more multiple picture deals. And as everybody knows, when you do that and you're in hits, you can start getting a lot more money than if you tied into an existing contract. And Moonraker was a gigantic hit, and Spy had been a gigantic hit. So Roger was holding out for a, a pretty big pay increase, and, and Cubby and United Artists didn't want to pay it. So they kind of went down to the wire. Was Roger Moore going to be in the film? That was even that was one of the uh, times they approached Timothy Dalton. They had approached him originally for on a majesty secret service when connery quit and then they approached him uh when roger looked like he wasn't going to do it so while they were looking for a new bond uh the director john glenn uh and the writer they were trying to figure out they assumed they were going to have a new actor so they were trying to figure out a way to tell the audience right off here's the new bond how to connect him and john glenn came up with the idea of opening it at the cemetery with Bond coming and putting flowers on the grave of his late wife, Tracy. Um, and and that they really love that idea. And so that's how the film begins. And then right at the last minute, Roger signs his contract. So it becomes um, Drew putting flowers on the grave of his wife. And the interesting part of that is it obviously doesn't introduce a new actor, but it makes Roger the Bond who mourns Tracy more than any of the other actors, um, which is interesting because he gets the reputation as being the light, the, the most lightweight Bond, yet he's the one who actually carries the tragedy around with him more. That's true. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. Yeah, I um, they they uh, it it I think it was um. It felt satisfactory to see a little bit, even though they don't really mention that it's Blofeld. I don't think he's named yeah. uh, in either the film or the credits, but uh, he certainly yeah, looks and there, sounds. There's a, there's a legal reason for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, okay. So this is this. I'll make this as simple as I can. Uh, Thunderball was a novel that Fleming wrote that he based on a screenplay treatment the original guy who was going to try to make a james bond movie was this guy kevin mcclory and um he and fleming they were going to create an original bond story back in the late 50s and they came up with what eventually became thunderball and then that project fell apart and the series obviously was picked up by cubby broccoli and harry saltzman who made the series that we know now and Fleming, for reasons that have never been completely clear, took the treatment that he had, or the screenplay actually that had been written with Kevin McClory, and wrote Thunderball based on it. And when McClory found that out, there was a big lawsuit, and it ended up with McClory getting all of the screen rights to Thunderball. And, um, and he ended up actually making a deal with Broccoli and Salzman to produce the film of Thunderball the only film uh, that those guys made where they don't get the producer credit they actually have an executive producer credit mcclory is is identified as the producer why that's important is that specter the whole organization of specter was created for thunderball and therefore blofeld was created for thunderball and that meant uh, and these legal arguments had gone back and forth for years but when kevin mcclory finally ended up with all of the rights 
Eon Productions couldn't use the character of Blofeld without making some sort of deal with McClory, and they didn't want to do that for a whole lot of reasons, which is why the last time you ever see Blofeld in the Bond series named as Blofeld is in Diamonds Are Forever, which came out in 1971. And then the character was not used uh, throughout. He was actually supposed to be the main villain of The Spy Who Loved Me, but that's when the lawsuits got all entangled and, and they actually ended up taking him out and created the character of Stromberg uh, to be the villain. Anyway, this was Eon's way, I think, of, um, shall we say... <laughs> flipping the bird to McClory. <laughs> yeah. they, they, they put a character in who we all know is Blofeld and who refers to Bond very familiarly. And there was actually originally a line in the script that said, uh, it's been 10 years since we've last met Mr. Bond. And they cut that out. Um, and he certainly looks like Blofeld. He's never referred to, but he's dropped down a, a smokestack at the end of the pre-credit sequence saying sort of goodbye to all that. And I, I definitely think that was their way of acknowledging the lawsuit with Mr. McClory. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, quite clever, actually, uh, to, yes. to, to be able to take care of that business. But, yeah, everybody wanted some closure on that. I think all the Bond fans, and they never really quite got it until that, that happened. Um, exactly, exactly, yeah. So, yeah. So we uh, we went through the casting of Roger Moore and, and what was going on there, and then we'll talk about uh, maybe a little bit about Bernard Lee, who had been in the series right from the beginning as uh, M, the head of M16. Yes. And yeah, um, yeah. Bon, uh, the, Bernard Lee was an actor who who had been in all of the Bond films. He played M, and he was supposed to play M in this one as well. He'd been in, in all of them. There's no reason, you know, to to think that he wouldn't. But uh, he became very sick. He had cancer. And he actually was brought to the studio to film his scenes and then became very ill. He basically couldn't get through the shooting day. So um, they, he was sent home, and they, he actually ended up passing away when the film was still in production. So at the very originally, the idea was they thought he'd recover and they'd bring him back towards the end of the, end of the schedule. But he passed away. So they ended up writing out the character of M. Cubby Broccoli was insistent he did not want to replace Bernard Lee in that film. He said we, he knew they were going to have to replace him, but not in that film because they didn't want to dishonor him. So the M scenes were rewritten for uh, a character called um, Tanner, who in the books is the chief of staff for M and is, um, is Bond's best friend. And so he would, that character was brought in, though not really written the way he was in the books. He was basically M giving Bond his assignment, and they had him work with um, a character that had been established in The Spy Who Loved Me called the Minister of Defense. Um, and that was played by an actor named Jeffrey Keane, who I actually always thought should have been the guy to replace Bernard Lee. He had the same sort of age and gravitas that Bernard Lee did. Mm -hmm. um, but so those, the scenes were kind of written to trade off between Tanner and, uh, and the chief of staff. I mean, I'm sorry. And the minister of defense, but that was because they were honoring Bernard Lee. Yeah. <clears throat> I think he was the first of the, the recurring um, cast, the, the ones who uh, appeared in yes. multiple films. I think he was the first one to pass, uh, and so, he was, yeah. yeah. So that was um, that was a milestone, I guess, in the series. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's the first. Other than the lead actor, it was the first time they really had to replace somebody. The lead actor it had become a tradition at that point, right. but not not the not the supporting cast. Yeah, this is true. And so, um, also wanted to mention Julian Glover, the villain in the film, uh, also had previously previously been considered to play Bond at some point. And I think that's some interesting trivia to talk about a little bit. Um, yes, yeah. He um, he was one when they were first looking for bonds in the early '60s. He was in the the sort of the big pool they were going through, um, and the idea then was that he was a little bit too young for the part, or he read too young on film. And I, I think he might have been in the mix because the next time they were going to replace Bond was. Uh, for Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I don't know if he was in the mix at that time, but he might have been. Um, but then when 
they were what he was actually one of the people they thought about when it looked like Roger might not do it. But by then they decided that he physically looked a little too old to start off as Bond um, at that point. But because they were considering him, they, they started to think of him as the villain. And so that's he ended up landing the part through, through that process of being considered as Bond. Yeah, that's that's in, I, I found that in my research and found it to be uh, that was something I did not know. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So and I, he will later went on to uh, face off against Indiana Jones in uh, in um, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah, that's true. That is that's that's a good yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so John Glenn and uh, Cubby Broccoli they saw Carol Bouquet in that object of uh, the obscure object yeah, that of desire. Obscure, uh, right. Yeah, yeah, and they uh, they went to Rome to invite her to play the the role of Melina. I think that's how that came about, I believe. And there's an interesting story about her being allergic to water. I think when they were yeah. filming, uh, that's <laughs> I found that to be yeah. quite interesting. <laughs> well, I I sort of love that they cast her in a film that has primarily underwater action, and no one checked to find out if she could work underwater until they got <laughs> yes. into production. But you know that's how it goes. Yeah, she was a model and an actress, and she was actually the original referral was uh, through Jerry Giroux, who was um, Eon's uh, publicity guy um, at the time, and he was the one who brought her up. And Cubby and John Glenn, you know, thought it was a good choice. And they went and they met with her and she ended up being cast in the picture. She had some sort of inner ear issue that didn't allow her to go underwater. So it's a film where there's a lot of scuba diving, a lot of underwater action. And basically they came up with a really clever way of approaching it, which was um, Roger, whenever she had to be underwater, she and Roger were filmed dry on a soundstage with fans blowing. So it would blow their hair. And then those scenes were shot in slow motion so that it looked like the hair was kind of, you know, uh, drifting around in the water. And then Derek Mettings, uh, the visual effects guy, laid in uh, bubbles over the scene to make it look like they were blowing air bubbles out of their mouth. <laughs> and and you cannot tell. I mean, it, it looks great. <laughs> you know, it's completely convincing. But that's how they did that. It does. It really does look convincing. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I did not know that. I had no knowledge of that until I started doing my research. So, yes. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> yeah she. Uh, yeah. I, as I said, I don't know when it came up, but it was like, hey guys, I can't go underwater. It's like, oh, hmm, that's a problem. <laughs> but <laughs> one of the great things about the Bond films is it. They just employed. I mean, Britain has such wonderful film craftsmen, and and almost all of them either got their start on the bonds or came to work on the bonds and that kind of cleverness you know really was it's just such a testament to how great those crews were you know oh yeah absolutely yeah and so many of them were returning players and so they kind of i guess knew, yeah. the, knew the drill so to speak yeah, yeah. <laughs> well they were all um everybody loved cubby and they would do anything for him yeah. so whenever whenever he called if they could make it they would you know <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so it's also interesting to note the death of a stuntman for the first time, I think, on a James Bond film. Um, I think, let's see, Paolo yeah, yeah. Rigon, I think I'm pronouncing the name correctly. I hope I am. Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he died because um, there's a lot of uh, snow action in the picture, and there was a bobsled run, and they filmed a lot of action on the bobsled run. And at a certain point, this is all with the second unit, but I guess one of the bobsleds went off the track and turned over, or, or there was a collision. I can't remember exactly what, but yeah, one of the stuntmen was killed. And that was, uh, that was, the Bond films are sort of noted for their safety, so that was a pretty big shock. Yeah, d most definitely. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it was, uh, and I think there have been uh, at least. Well, there's been more than one, I think, since then, unfortunately, I believe. Uh, yeah, there was a terrible accident on um, um, the following film, which was Octopussy, where Roger Moore's stunt double was an Irish stuntman called Martin Grace. And there's a train sequence in Octopussy where Bond is hanging on the outside of a train trying to go from one carriage to another. And I, there was some miscalculation in the speed or something. 
and Martin Grace ended up slamming into a pole that was by the side of the tracks. He wasn't, he, it was supposed to be timed, so he wasn't going to happen, but it did. And he ended he broke almost every bone in his body and he was in hospital for, I think it was like six to seven months. Um, and that was the worst accident they'd ever had, uh, up until that point. Gosh, that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. All right. Um, well, I'll mention that the production of the actual film began on September 2nd, 1980 in the North Sea, and they had mm-hmm. uh, several days of uh, shooting exteriors uh, with the um, uh, the interiors were later shot in Pinewood. So I think a lot of right. the, the, most of the interior stuff was done there, I believe, if I'm not, uh, as well as the ship's explosion, I think that's in the film. Yeah. Uh, there was a real ship, and that they began. The second unit began with um, photography of the real ship. The sets were all done at Pinewood, and then there was a miniature shipwreck that was all done in the tank at Pinewood by Derek Maddox, who was the the brilliant miniature artist who worked on Superman, and he worked on a lot of the Bonds. He worked on Thunderbirds, and he was the he was the main miniature guy and special effects guy on those films at that time. And what's cool is they intercut all that stuff, and it's all pretty seamless, which they were such a tight unit at that point. Um, one of the things that's important about the film, too, is it's the first Bond film directed by John Glenn, who up until then had been an editor and a second unit director. And he had edited Honor Majesty's Secret Service, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Moonraker, um, and had done second unit work. Most famously, he's the guy who shot the great ski jump that opens the spy who loved me. And, and it's, there's some, one of the things is the previous bond films have been directed by Lewis Gilbert, who was an established British director, very used to making big films full of spectacle and big sets. Part of this lowering the budget, getting back to basics thing was they couldn't really afford a director on the level of, of Lewis Gilbert. So Cubby made the decision to take John Glenn, who had done such good work as an editor and second unit director, and give him the opportunity to direct For Your Eyes Only. And and he he assembled a team, including a director of photography named Alan Hume, who had been the second unit photographer on The Spy Who Loved Me, who did the ski jump. And they brought together him and uh, Ken Adam, the famous Bond production designer, had left at that point. He His last Bond film was Moonraker. So the art director, Peter Lamont, was elevated to become production designer. And basically what you had, and you had Michael Wilson working as a co-writer, essentially the entire creative team was brand new, um, other than Cubby Broccoli, the producer. And they even brought in new production managers and things. And it was sort of like these were the guys schooled to do the second unit sort of lower budget B team stuff, they were elevated to the A team. And that became the creative team that made all of the 80s Bonds films as well. So it's a significant film because it's a real changing of the guard creatively behind the scenes. Yeah, that, that is, uh, that's very curious. And uh, you know, I guess it was a, you know, a reset in one just from a yeah. storyline standpoint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but the people doing the storytelling. And, and what, what doesn't get talked about a lot, though, is it was a really... The Bond films had always been from after the first couple, where they had been sort of lower-budgeted uh, programmer-type movies. They were big-budget spectacles. And they certainly remained well-made A movies uh, in the 80s. But the budgets actually stayed pretty much the same. Just that had to do with the economics of the film industry, all of the problems involved in United Artists, and, and you know, which was going through all sorts of um, upheaval at that time. Oh, yeah. And why, why I'm making an issue of that is that worked fairly well on, on For Your Eyes Only. But if you actually watch the Bond films as they go through the 80s, you can sort of see that they have to start tightening their belts more and more. So by the time they get to License to Kill, which was the last Bond film of the 80s, it, it was almost a TV movie in terms of, in terms of the main unit stuff. Um, they just didn't have the money to do much more. Uh, they, they did spend on the stunts and things, but uh, that all changed later when the new series began uh, under new producers later. But yeah, the, it, was a, it was an interesting low-budget time for the Bond series in the 80s. 
Yeah, and they mask it quite well. Uh, if you didn't know yeah. that, uh, you you really uh, and, that, and when you mention it, you can you can kind of think back and 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 it does make sense. But yeah, United Artists had lots of uh, they, they were not in good shape, especially as you previously mentioned after the Heaven's Gate uh, debacle. Uh, right. That, well, Heaven, Heaven's Gate, and then it got sold to MGM, and then it got sold off a bunch of times. I mean, it, United United Artists effectively ended in 1981. Um, you know, it's been kept alive in different ways. The the problem for the Bond films is. Um, United Artists was the financial partner on the Bond films. They co-owned it with Cubby Broccoli, and there's a complicated set of reasons for that. But essentially, this, they couldn't. It's not like they could take it and go to a different studio. So whatever was going on with United Artists would would seriously affect the films, and it it actually really seriously affected License to Kill to the point where that, that film. Um, basically bombed at the United States box office. And that had as much to do with the poor promotion that that studio just couldn't afford as it did with the actual picture itself. Yeah, it was definitely one of the, the lowest earning uh, yes. films. And yeah. I, 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 um, I religiously went to see all of them in the theaters from the time I was old enough to drive myself to the movies. Uh, yeah. I would, uh, from that point on, I saw them all, and uh, I I, uh, <laughs> I was there for License to Kill um, opening day, I think. But yeah, yeah, I, was, yeah. I was kind of surprised that uh, that it didn't, you know, that it did because I thought Timothy Dalton made a pretty good James Bond actually, and uh, yep. would have been interested yep. to see what uh, if they hadn't had that gap in the early '90s, uh, if they had made a few more, I would have been interesting to see what 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 would have happened there with him. But I guess we'll never know. Uh, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> things not things not to be. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah. But for your eyes only worked very well. It um you know they it's a, it's actually a really good entry in the series. You know. I think it is too. It's very solid. Uh, a lot a lot of good stuff going on there. And of course, there's the uh, uh, Cassandra Harris uh, makes an appearance in the film, and she would later marry uh, Pierce Brosnan. Uh, of course, and they were married at the time. Oh, yeah. that's right. That is correct. Yes, they were married at the time. Yeah. Yes, and she sat. But he came to he came to hang out on the set, and that's when they first met him. So, right. yeah, <laughs> it's was, a, a, a once in future bond going on there. <laughs> yeah, I, I was under the. I could not remember exactly the timeline of when they married, but I, I knew they were together at that time. But I was thinking maybe they were just d- dating at that point. But okay, married. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh yeah, so it's it's interesting how that ties in as well. Uh, I know Roger Moore said he had a big fear of heights, and uh, doing the climbing in Greece, he uh, had to resort to moderate drinking, as he uh, yeah. as he called it. To call <laughs> I, I think nerves. he said, uh, yeah, drinking in Xanax. I think <laughs> he got yeah. through it. Yeah, he uh, he didn't love heights, and he he obviously didn't do the the stunt parts but he did have to get positioned because the whole ending takes place on top of a mountain that has to be scaled to to storm the bad guys headquarters mm-hmm. and um yeah and so yeah he had to get positioned out there and he said that was probably in terms of uh filming one of his least favorite <laughs> sequences to ever work on the actual stunts that happened in the sequence were done by Rick Sylvester, who's the guy who did the ski jump in The Spy Who Loved Me. So he was a little more used to the heights, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. Uh, so we'll move on to post-production. Uh, and there's an okay. interesting, mm-hmm. uh, we'll talk about uh, the score, which was uh, written by Bill Conti, who yep, I think yeah. this was his first and only uh, yep. score for yeah. a James Bond film. Uh, Conti, of course, um, most famous for Rocky. And, uh, of course, there's other things he's done since then, but that's the one that, that was his claim to fame and uh, the subsequent Rocky sequels. But yep. Um, yep. John Barry was not... Um, he was not. Av- I don't know if he was not available or just didn't want to do it. Uh, maybe he was suffering Bond fatigue at that point. I'm not sure. <laughs> Well, he had, um, John Barry had a lot of tax issues in the 70s. Like, this is sort of forgotten now, but England in the 1970s had a 90% tax rate for people who earned above a certain amount. So there are a lot of people who left the country. You'll hear, if you read a lot about the making of films at the time, you'll hear a lot about British actors being called tax exiles. And basically they left the country like Roger Moore himself. He, he stopped living in England. He went and lived in Switzerland. 
Um, and he did that because they, they just didn't want to pay 90% in taxes. And, um, and you could only work a certain amount of days per year in the country without being subject to this tax rate. So John Barry was one of the people who left England. He actually moved to the United States in the mid seventies and he could only work, um, excuse me, he could only work um, occasionally. So if you look, he's kind of intermittently on the bonds through most of the seventies. He pretty much does every other one. Then Mm -hmm. with the next picture, Octopussy, by then the tax rates had changed and he's pretty consistent till the end of the living daylights, which was his last, Bond film, um, but um, but yeah, so he he couldn't do it. I think he was he was in his tax exile period at that point. So he recommended Bill Conti, and, and you're right, Bill Conti was most famous for Rocky. He had been doing other things through that time period. He would later do the score for The Right Stuff, which is pretty cool, and a bunch of other things. I, it's not my favorite Bond score. Um, it's a little too heavy with, uh, it's, it's a very heavily disco influence. Oh yeah. And, uh, yeah. And a little bit kind of jazzy funk and I, it's not my favorite style for Bond. Um, but he did write the, he did write the music for the title song, which I think is a terrific title song. Um, you know, which was, uh, sung eventually by Sheena Easton in the film. And I think that's one of the highlights of the Bond uh, title songs. Yeah, I agree. Um, It's interesting. uh, One reviewer, uh, I think I wrote down the quote here, Bill Conti's score is a constant source of annoyance, was one critic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I I don't know if I'd go that far, but I kind of, probably more on that side than any other. Yeah, I think (laughs) that was... uh, I think that was from a, a, a Time Out uh, review that was uh, from the early two, <laughs> early 2000s. Yeah, uh, yeah, but it's interesting also that Sheena Easton, she, I think it was just a couple months prior, uh, had scored her first hit with a Morning Train 9 yeah. to 5, which was a big uh, hit in America and in the UK as well. And she really, before that, wasn't wasn't really known. She had been on a talent show, I think, and won the top honors, but didn't her career mm-hmm. just really didn't take off until uh, the, she she did the song uh, Morning Train 9 to 5, which was actually retitled Morning Train 9 to 5 because of 9 to 5, but Dolly Parton which right. was also on the... Uh, but yeah, so they must have grabbed her pretty quickly because that was in the spring of 81, and so this was three months yeah. after that hit. So she, she must have just been... They just must have grabbed her immediately. Hey, she's the latest thing. Let's grab her. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, she was only... I think she was only like 21 when she, she was, did it. Yes. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, she had just had her hit. And the Bond films have always been pretty good about going after whoever might be the... the they, they tend to either get the person who's really hot or they get someone who hasn't done anything in 10 years. They, they don't seem to... They, they kind of go back and forth a little bit That's with that. True. Uh, yeah, and also at that point was when Barbara Broccoli first started working on the films, and my guess is she was probably a little more in touch with pop music at that point than her father, who was obviously older, and even her older brother Michael Wilson. So um, I would I would bet that had something to do with Barbara Broccoli. Um, the the cool thing too is not only did she sing the song, but she is the first Bond title song singer to actually appear in the credit sequence. And that was basically because, um, <clears throat> excuse me again, when um, they were planning the title sequence, Morris Binder, who had done all the Bond titles up to that point, apparently he just got a big crush on her. And, and he really <laughs> thought she was adorable and he just wanted to put her in. So it's actually kind of a music video when you watch it. That was kind of right at the dawn of the music video era. But yeah, she's all through the title sequence. That has never happened since. And it didn't happen before either. But Morris had a little crush, so that's what happened. Well, if you know the right people, I guess that's what happens. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and she says uh, she says she still gets recorded. You know, she sings it all the time. It's and the 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 person they've actually approached Debbie Harry to sing it because Blondie was big at the time, Mm -hmm. but she wanted to write it as well. And at that time that was not done now the, the the groups and the singers who do the bond songs usually co-write them in those days um it was either john barry or who was ever doing the who was ever doing the score that was responsible for the the title song so debbie harry wanted 
wanted to write it and wanted Blondie to perform on it, and they had only wanted her to sing. The interesting thing is if you check out, I forget the name of it, but there's a Blondie uh, album from, I think it's 82 or 83. I think it's that The Hunt, her version. Yeah. The Hunt, that's right, yeah. you're right. And um, that has uh, her version of For Your Eyes Only on it. But So that she was the original person that approached, but then they all obviously went with Sheena Easton. Yeah, I think they went, they made the wise choice. And, you know, nothing, yeah. against, uh, nothing against Debbie Harry and Blondie. I was a fan, but... Uh, and still am, but uh, the hunter was not there. <laughs> right. By the time they reached the hunter, that was not the apex of their career, and uh, I know they right. were still well, having some hits at that point. But still, they were kind of on the downward slope, yeah. and so yeah, they 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 made the wise choice, I think. Um, yeah. So we'll talk about the gross of the film, the ultimate results. Um, uh, it made fifty four point eight million in the United States, uh, equivalent to one hundred one point five million. Uh, as right. of 2011, of course, that's or 156 <laughs> million in 2020 dollars. So uh, right, there you go, there you go. Well, it did, yeah. Well, the Bond films traditionally did well in America, but they tended to make most of their money overseas, which in those days was the opposite of everything else. In those days, most movies made most of their money in the United States and then would make a percentage, but not nearly as much overseas because the Bond films were, they're a weird hybrid of they're, they're technically British films made often with American money and, and co-producers and things. But um, they traditionally have been always popular the world over. Now that is the common pattern. So Bond really, now most films make their money overseas and don't make, so much here or percentage wise um but yeah it did very well it opened the same summer as raiders of the lost ark so you could probably imagine that had raiders not been there um you know it might have it might have grossed more but it still did very well it's also the summer of superman 2 in the united states so um that was a that was a pretty good summer for those kind of pictures you know um but yeah it did well uh it didn't it didn't do as well as moonraker um, but Moonraker was kind of the high point, so I don't think they really thought it was going to do as well as that. But it, it certainly was considered a success. It was considered a creative success and a commercial success. Yes, not bad. Not bad, 54.8 yeah. for 1981, I would say. So yeah. It certainly do a lot worse. Yeah, and of and course... And they had a... Oh, go ahead. Were you going to, were you going to bring up the poster? Oh, I was just going to say it was the last film, uh, the last James Bond film to be sorely released by United Artists uh, because uh, Transamerica, right. as we had mentioned, yeah, they finalized the sale of the brand to MGM. So all the subsequent films were released under the MGM UA distribution company logo. Right. So I think that's interesting. But anyway, go go on about the poster, the promo, the promotional cinema poster. Well, okay. Yeah, there, there was a bit of a controversy in the day, which is really funny yeah. because now it wouldn't be anything. But um, the posters up until then had traditionally been uh, posters with artwork, paintings, and things on them. They decided to do something new. They decided to use a photograph. Um, so the photograph was Roger Moore in a in a gun barrel crouch pose with his with his gun in the distance, seen between the the legs of a woman holding a, um, a crossbow because the lead actress in the film. Uh, hunts and she's going for revenge on her parents who were killed by the villains and she uses a crossbow but it's also obviously a uh, picture where a lot of action takes place underwater so they had her in a bikini bottom so basically all you saw was her rear end in a bikini bottom and her two legs coming down a little bit like the MASH uh, logo and then holding a crossbow and I guess when they were filming the, the picture with a model they turned the bikini around, the bikini bottom around. So essentially what would have been the front was now in the back, which means there were more more of, um, how shall I say it? Her Exposed rear end, buttocks. Her butt, her, her, <laughs> yeah, her butt cheeks, basically, were um, quite prominent. And uh, I don't know, I was a teenage person or whatever back oh, yeah. then, and I remember it certainly caught my attention. Um, <laughs> but it, it caused a huge kerfuffle because there were people who felt it was obscene. There were um, newspapers that refused to run it. There were articles about the controversy. And in some of the markets, they they did um not photoshopping but they retouched the photo 
so that the uh, the uh, the woman's rear end was uh, in uh, hot pants or in shorts, basically, um, so that you know, so that wouldn't be in this reverse bikini bottom. I've seen that that version of the poster. It's nowhere near as good as <laughs> they actually put out. But and of course, you know, controversy always works. So that actually got a lot of attention brought to the film, you know, without them having to pay much for it. So pretty, pretty, pretty interesting there too. Oh yeah, of course. Well, that's uh, yeah that 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 is something that I had totally forgotten about until you just mentioned it, and then I I, I had jotted that down in my notes, and and it was on the other page, and so I was like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's that's a that's an excellent story to uh, to bring to life, if, if in case anybody doesn't know about that. Yep. So uh, ultimately, I think for your eyes only uh, is one of the better of the. Um, I, I don't know how you would rank it in terms of the '80s or in the series overall, but I would say it's a a solid. Uh, one of the better ones, I, I think. I, th- I think so. I think um, my feeling about the 80s Bond film, I think they're wildly up and down. Um, I, I think I think there were really good things and some of the low points of the series in the, in that in that decade. Um, but I definitely I think the two best Bond films of the 80s are For Your Eyes Only and The Living Daylights, which was Timothy Dalton's first picture. I certainly think it's one of the best of the Roger Moore Bonds. I'm one of the people who thinks The Spy Who Loved Me is his best one. Um, but I'd say this one ranks uh, number two or three, depending on where you uh, put Moonraker in there. Um, but yeah, and I, I definitely think it's one of the higher points of the series for sure. It's not the best of them, but it's... Um, it is a super entertaining movie. It, it's funny to rewatch it now because I remember at the time, you know, like all the Bond films were considered, uh, you know, super fast paced action movies. It almost has a leisurely pace compared to films now, but I, I rewatched it in preparation for, for this uh, show. And, and I actually was, I really enjoyed it kind of it taking its time to get where it needed to go. I, I didn't realize that I missed that, but I kind of missed that a little bit in movies. <laughs> I do, too. I do, too. I, I think uh, there's something to be said about letting things unfold in a more leisurely uh, pattern and paying as long as it pays off. Uh, that's <laughs> right. Well, yeah. That, and, and in that one, it did. I, I mean, you know, we don't, I don't have to go too much into this, but I, I do think John Glenn was uh, an interesting director for that series because I think in some ways he was terrific and in some ways he was maybe not he was very inconsistent, I think. I think in For Your Eyes Only, he's he's really consistent, and it shows him off to his best strength. I think some of the other pictures, um, you know, you could argue he wasn't maybe maybe at the top of his game, but uh, but he really was in this one. He made it's a smashing debut for a for a beginning director. Oh, yeah. 